Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. When you catch a cold or get the flu, it's uncomfortable for a few days, but most of us get better with no long-term effects. That's not the case with COVID-19. The disease has taken 3.8 million lives so far worldwide, and it continues to affect many people who thought they recovered. Today, where we live, we'll talk about COVID long haulers. Connecticut has several COVID recovery clinics for people continuing to deal with health issues. We'll hear from physicians about new therapies and treatments, including the use of repurposed drugs. And we want to hear from you. Are you or someone you know a COVID long hauler? What impact has this virus had on your health to this day? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to first welcome to the show on Zoom, Diana Barron, recovering COVID long hauler, and she's the founder of Survivor Corps. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, I understand that Survivor Corps has really grown over the last year and a half. It started when you were first diagnosed with COVID. Tell me about the role that this group plays in helping people in our country. Yeah, so you know what? It's funny. Uh, Most people just assume that it started as a patient advocacy group. But the truth is that I was actually one of the first people to non-healthcare workers to get a positive diagnosis in the New York metropolitan, the tri-state area back in early March 2020. And I spent 18 days in isolation. And during that time, I became you know, totally obsessed with the idea of convalescent plasma and the idea that if I could survive this, that I could contribute to science. And if I could do that, what could an army of survivors do? And so I started Survivor Corps before there was any need for patient advocacy because there was none needed. You either lived or you died. But if you lived, you had powers to save lives. And so I started Survivor Corps with the mission of mobilizing an army of survivors to donate their plasma and more importantly, to support science in every way possible, using our experiences, our blood, our plasma, whatever it is, the mysteries, so many of the mysteries of this novel virus I knew lay in our bodies. Um, It started as, you know, I thought that there would be a few thousand people to follow. I never suspected that it would be in the tens of millions. I was on the the Facebook page the other day, just scrolling through, reading the posts, and it's clear that Survivor Corps, you really provide that kind of support for people who may think that there's no one else there that understands what they're going through. But here during in Survivor Corps, people understand and it's a, a helping uh, hand at times uh, when we're all dealing with so much, Diana. Yeah, I think that it can be such a lonely experience for so people, especially to be, you know, you feel like you are a guinea pig. You are a guinea pig. 
um, with this virus. And there are really no true COVID experts out there. My apologies to all of the doctors on the panel. But um, I think that Survivor Corps is one of those examples of the old adage of when you need an expert, you find a patient. And so among the 170,000 members in the Facebook group, you know, if you put in a keyword of a symptom and none of the other 170,000 people have experienced it, it's probably not COVID related. And if it is, the answers will come flooding out. Let's bring in one of those doctors uh, on Zoom with us as well, Dr. Sheragim Kemp, director of the New Vance Health COVID Recovery Program, both in Western Connecticut and New York. She's a primary care physician where she consults with long-haul patients. Dr. Kemp, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So I've used the term long-haul several times. So let's talk about who are long-haul patients. At this point in time, um, we define these individuals based on NIH guidelines for individuals who have persistent symptoms post-COVID, which are basically lasting anywhere from four to eight weeks. Um, They've defined it more so as anybody who's having symptoms four weeks and beyond. And these symptoms can be fatigue, headaches, muscle aches, um, abdominal symptoms, brain fog, sleep disorders. I'm sure Diana can um, assert too. There's so many different variables with what these patients are experiencing, but we do have um, some list of symptoms that are the most common, which again are the brain fog, fatigue, muscle aches, which we're seeing in these individuals four weeks and beyond. And one thing that it's important to note on that is actually the CDC just released its first um, interim clinical guidance last week and now says officially that you do not have to have had a positive COVID diagnosis in order to be diagnosed with long COVID, recognizing that there were so many people, especially in the you know, Connecticut, New York area last spring who were unable to get um tests at all. And when they were able to get them, they were often faulty. And we know that not everyone comes out of COVID with antibodies. So talk more about the, the CDC guidelines that just came out and how that's um, helping your patients with peace of mind. Because again, with so many people dealing with symptoms and not knowing where to turn, um, I'm just wondering if you can talk more about what Diana mentioned. Absolutely. Um, to the most important thing about this is the fact that there's a global process that's happening. There is uh, global efforts that are being made. And as a result of it, uh, CDC has published certain guidelines so that we basically stay on track, so to speak. Um, we want at this point in time for individuals to feel that they have a home, a medical home. Many times with these types of processes, especially when a pandemic that has affected the entire world, um, when things start to resolve, so to speak, uh, there's left a group of individuals who um, unfortunately have a lot of unanswered questions, um, unanswered medical issues. And so CDC has essentially put out these guidelines guidelines where we need to gather these individuals, make sure that they have a place in our medical communities, and that we have a multidisciplinary approach uh, since many of them are suffering from so many different symptoms. Um, And many of these uh, patients, we can begin with the primary 
care physician and being able to evaluate and assess their symptoms to determine what the best care is. I think the most uh, important process, though, is to make sure to give these patients reassurance, uh, to validate them, to make sure that they know that um, there is a process that's happening, uh, research that's occurring, ever evolving, and make sure that they have the support that they need, both physically and emotionally, as we work through the nuances of creating care that's appropriate for them. Dr. Kemp, I mentioned the New Vance Health post-COVID recovery program. It opened in February of this year. How many patients uh, are being seen and what's the wait time? We have um, over 150 patients at this point. Uh, We did do a soft opening in February um, just for a few individuals that we knew had the need for a comprehensive care. And then we moved into a more definite launch in March and April. Um, As far as the weight is concerned, we make sure that these individuals are being seen within one to two weeks of calling the program because we know how difficult it is to be waiting for answers. And we understand that there's a tremendous need again, as validated by the CDC, to make sure that these individuals have a home, a medical home. And that so we do our best to get everybody in within one to two weeks. Diana, from the people that are part of Survivor Corps, is that typical that they're able to see someone within one to two weeks? Do they feel like they're being listened to? (laughs) No, in (laughs) fact, I just had a huge smile on my face as I heard that because there is truly a feeling of desperation among the long hauler community. Um, There are, you know, there are, thank God, now post-COVID care centers opening. And if you are looking for one near you, please go to SurvivorCore.com, C-O-R-P-S. We have the um, most comprehensive listing of post-COVID care centers around the country listed. But um, realistically, for most people, it's a matter of months. And, uh, you know, I want to just point out one story um, Heidi Ferrer, who's a member of Survivor Corps, a you know woman about my age who lived in Los Angeles and was suffering from long-term COVID for 14 months, and she had applied five times to get into her local post-COVID care center, and she finally got the referral the day before she committed suicide last month. Um, So these are the stakes that we're talking about. And that's why it's so important that when people are seeking help, that someone reaches out to them immediately, even if it's not offering medical help, but, uh, you know, checking in and letting them know that they are not going insane, that this is real, and that there might not be answers exactly today, but there are ways that symptoms can be managed. And that's really important. You're hearing Diana Barrett here on Where We Live. She's a recovering COVID long hauler, founder of Survivor Corps. As we talk about COVID long haulers, if you're one of them, we want to hear about how uh, you're getting help or maybe struggling uh, to get help uh, from your health care provider. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Kemp, let's talk more about uh, what you and your colleagues are learning about treating long haul COVID some of the new therapies and treatments. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. But before I do that, I do want to commend Diana and her group. It is groups like this that have been able to push science to create um, a uh, agenda, so to speak. And so I really do have to say that we're grateful for the communities of individuals who have stood up to advocate for uh, long haulers. So thank you to you, Diana, and to your group who's been instrumental in this process. Um, as far as the um, modalities at this point in time, to your point, we really want to have a multidisciplinary, multi-group um, approach. We have approximately 15 uh, specialists who we um, want to incorporate in the care of our patients that are in the uh, COVID recovery program. Um, and what we do is we basically try to have a comprehensive plan after a thorough evaluation of the patient themselves. And we want to include them and we do include them in the care process. Some of these individuals have been through so much that we want to make sure that we're not adding more burden to their treatment plan by adding more appointments and more visits and more uh, goals that they may not reach. So we try to set with them realistic expectations, realistic goals, and create a comprehensive care plan that would be most appropriate for their specific symptoms. I mentioned you're a primary care physician, and so talk about the role of PCPs in managing these long COVID symptoms until someone is able to get into that long COVID clinic, Dr. Kemp. I'm really proud of primary care at this point to be highlighted, um, particularly with what CDC has put out with their guidelines, that the primary care physician can be the gateway for these individuals since they are multifactorial. You have so many different organ systems that are involved and a primary care physician, a primary care provider can help you determine what are some of the ways to manage these symptoms until they're able to get into these multidisciplinary groups. Those conversations are long. Um, we spend approximately 75 minutes with the first visit with our patient, just so that we can determine every single aspect of the disease that's affecting them. Um, what primary care can do is essentially at this point in time, become the gateway, as I mentioned before, for their uh, intended health goals. Um, and we always work with the primary care physicians and honor that relationship since they know their patients best. So give us an example. We hear that COVID survivors, uh, many struggle with shortness of breath or struggle with regaining smell. And so how are you treating those symptoms? Well, it's very interesting at this point in time, since we are involved in 15 different specialists, meaning we get together um, every two weeks to discuss patient care. If I need to, I will discuss patient care on a daily basis with some of these specialists who have devoted and dedicated time to taking care of this special group of individuals. Um, the reason that that's important to understand is the fact that the therapies are ever evolving, the treatments are ever evolving. So we are constantly speaking and communicating with one another, not only in our system, but cross system. And I think that that's what makes this so unique, the approach that we're taking to post-COVID that perhaps we would not have done with other diseases. Um, with that being said, 
we're using a lot of modalities that we may not have normally used. Uh, say, for example, pulmonary rehab, which is for patients who are oxygen dependent or who have interstitial lung disease or fibrosis. These are uh, processes that are very specific for them in the past. Now we're applying this to our long haulers, our post-COVID, where they'll be able to uh, learn essentially um, to increase their lung functions, to breathe better, to um, have better exercise tolerance. Uh, so that would be one aspect of it. Um, other things that we would do modalities would be the physical therapy, very specific to um, long haulers, meaning that we don't want to push these individuals too hard. We want to be very slow in their recovery. Um, so that's something we would have perhaps not done in the past. Um, as far as medications, and I'm certain that that'll be discussed in detail um, later in the program, but we are using certain uh, inhalers or certain things that perhaps we would not have applied to individuals who don't have specific diagnoses. So all of these treatments are being done under the care of a multidisciplinary a team approach, which makes it feel very uh, safe for the patient because they know it's not just one person um, trying to fix them, so to speak. Dr. Kempa, we're almost out of time, but if you could be specific when, when we're talking about some of the medications uh, coming up, as you mentioned, we will be talking about drug repurposing, but can you get an example of when uh, some off-label drugs that are being prescribed for COVID long haulers? One of the ones that we could describe is, you know, definitely albuterol inhalers or these types of medications that we'd normally use for asthma medications uh, for this shortness of breath. We've been using those for patients to help them with uh, their symptoms of breathing. We've been using some uh, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, which are medications normally used for patients with heart conditions uh, to help with some of the heart symptoms that they've been having uh, with regards to the palpitations. Um, these are just some of the ones, but again, the science is continuously evolving and we're using each of these on an individual basis. We really analyze each patient as an individual and uh, because every single person has uh, different symptoms that will manifest itself and will benefit differently from different medications. So we try not to have a broad brush approach to the patients with medications. Mm. Diana Barron, I wanted to go back to you again, founder of Survivor Corps. You know, it's heartening to hear that uh, that doctors are trying uh, different things, uh, even repurposing drugs to deal with some of these long-term symptoms. Uh, what's your take on a lot of these COVID recovery clinics that are opening? Uh, is it a sign of hope for so many? It's absolutely a sign of hope, but they do have to understand the confounding heterogeneity of this disease and understand also have the humility to understand that we're not there with answers yet. And there can be some very practical approaches that we can take in the meantime. I went through a post-COVID care center last summer and one of the best pieces of advice I was given was to wear compression pants. I went from the ankle to above the pelvis. And I swear wearing them every day improved the endothelial lining of my vasculature. I swear it really improved my symptoms. Um, but before, I, I know we're out of time for this segment, but the one thing I just have to mention is that the thing that I'm proudest that of Survivor Corps for accomplishing in this last year is really 
redefining what it means to be a citizen scientist and reestablishing it as a citizen scientist collaborator. And um, we are actually doing a study with Yale University and um, we, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki at Yale had floated a theory on Twitter about why perhaps people could feel better after the vaccine and chalked it up possibly it was um, viral reservoirs or it was um, an overactive immune response. And we were able to get the data within days of over a thousand people where we found 45% of our members were improving from the vaccine. We got that data to Dr. Iwasaki and within about seven weeks, we had an IRB approved study that was under enrollment. And so just if you have access to New Haven and you are suffering from long COVID and you are ages 12 and up, and you are planning to get the vaccine and haven't yet, please go to SurvivorCorps slash Yale and sign up. Well, thank you, Diana Barron, uh, for coming on the show and giving us really important information, especially for people who are still suffering from COVID symptoms in our state here in Connecticut. Diana Barrett, thank you for your time. Founder of Survivor Corps, we appreciate it. Thank you. Also with us with Dr. Shara Geem-Kemp, Director of the New Vance Health COVID Recovery Program in Western Connecticut and New York. Dr. Kemp, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today, we're focusing on COVID long haulers who continue to have symptoms after getting COVID-19. There are several COVID recovery clinics in our state, and combined with Yale, New Vance Health, and UConn alone, there are about 710 long haul, long haul patients. Coming up, we talked to a doctor who helped set up Yale's recovery clinic last year, and we learn more about new treatments and therapies, including drug repurposing. You can join us too, 888-720. 9677-888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Over the last year and a half, we've heard public officials talk about the number of COVID-19 deaths or the number of people hospitalized, metrics that made many of us take the pandemic seriously. But here's another metric that may not be on your radar. More than one in four COVID-19 patients develop 
long-haul symptoms lasting for months, even if they had mild cases. This is according to a handful of studies since February. So what's being done to help them? Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Naftali Kaminsky. He's a pulmonologist, chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. His expertise is lung fibrosis or scarring and drug and biomarker discovery. So his work looks at how to approach these patients that develop progressive or sustained lung disease. Dr. Kaminsky, welcome to our show. Dr. Kaminsky, can you hear me? Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you as well. Uh, now, we were talking with Dr. Kemp about some of uh, the, the, the treatments uh, or drug repurposing that um, medical doctors and others are looking to help COVID long haulers. Can you give us some ideas or examples of this? So the, the main problem that we have with COVID long haulers, and uh, we call it uh, the post-acute uh, COVID syndrome, is that we actually don't necessarily know what we're dealing with. The range of symptoms and findings could go anywhere from shortness of breath, uh, you know, the brain fog, uh, weakness, other things that people have mentioned. Medicine usually doesn't treat symptoms, it treats diseases, and we don't know yet what are the diseases we treat. So we treat conditions. So for instance, some patients, and glad, I'm glad to say that this is a real minority of people with symptoms, have uh, ongoing uh, lung findings, uh, a little bit of uh, shortness of breath, difficulty in oxygen, and then we treat them currently symptomatically. We can give them things that uh, suppress inflammation like steroids. The problem is that with everything we do, we do not have evidence that it works. And this is a, a huge problem. I understand there is a University of California, San Diego clinical trial looking at a drug that was FDA approved for heart failure and uh, medical providers have been using it to help COVID long haulers who've seen changes in heart rate or severe fatigue and brain mm -hmm. fog. And so talk a little bit more about how doctors uh, come to this uh, to be able to say, well, maybe try this drug, as you mentioned, uh, if it's been used more commonly for something else. Exactly. So the approach is, uh, is a little bit, uh, you, you may say, uh, treatment by comparison. So if a drug worked for something like heart failure, or lung fibrosis or um, cough, we can try and give it to a person that has long COVID and see if it works. The main issue with these approaches is again, that they do not provide us answers. The other problem is, especially with the new disease, COVID emerged just uh, 16 or 17 months ago and long COVID emerged nine months ago, is usually it takes us a very long time to develop a drug. For, for instance, one of the molecules I worked as a postdoc fellow 20 years ago in pulmonary fibrosis and scarring is only now in clinical trials. So 20 years later, we cannot afford to wait so long, right? People are suffering now. So one of the most common approaches to try to accelerate drug discovery is basically use drugs that are already on the market. And the way you do it is this, hundreds, actually thousands of drugs that have been developed by drug companies and investigators and have been tried for cancer, for Alzheimer's, for other conditions. 
they're not necessarily, they have not worked, but many times we know they're safe. So we can see if they have a mechanism of action that would affect the mechanism of action that we think a long COVID patient has. And then we could basically try and accelerate because this is cheaper because much of the drug development has been done. It's safer because we know that these drugs are usually have been in humans and they're safe. And many times it's also easier in terms of regulation because the paperwork and the information is available to researchers, to the regulatory bodies, to the Federal Drug Administration. Um, one of the things that there's several uh, drug trials now looking at potential drugs that have been shown to slow down fibrosis, and they're looking whether they would be helpful for, again, this rare population of people who have uh, uh, long COVID and uh, pulmonary finding. I, I, I want to highlight one thing, which is really hope, and it's really important. When the patient shows up in our recovery clinic, um, they're confused. And I loved what Diana said, you know, the role of the patient uh, or the citizen scientist. And many times people come in, we have a general understanding of what's going on, but it is the patient with their telling of symptoms, with their guiding of expectations, that's helping us make the correct diagnosis. And it is the patient's willingness to participate in research that actually may help them. And it's really important because even now from our observational studies, we see that the majority of patients do get better. So sometimes it's observation and reassurance and rehabilitation and not necessarily treatment with drugs that may cause side effects that's important. Mm. Dr. Kaminsky, again, scarring of the lungs is your expertise. And I understand that there are two specific drugs um, repurposed that you're looking at and have started clinical trials on. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, what I do actually, and sort of more specifically, is I look at signatures in the tissue of disease. And we can analyze today every single cell in an organ, like in the lung. So the lung has trillions of cells. But we can analyze every one of them and look at the signature. So what I can do is actually, or my group, my lab, is identify signatures of disease. And then we can take drugs that have been used for disease before, for other diseases, and see, are they reversing the signature, like wiping out the disease in the cell? And then we could propose to use them in a drug. One of the drugs that we uh, are using now, this is for pulmonary fibrosis, is a drug called uh, sarcatinib. Sarcatinib was developed for Alzheimer and computational analysis. So using artificial intelligence, our collaborators and us found that this may be a good target for fibrosis. We got funding from the NIH, did the, the uh, experiments in uh, cell culture and animals, and everything suggested that the drug is working. And now this drug is on trial for patients for pulmonary fibrosis idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis at Yale, Mount Sinai, New York, and National Jewish in Denver to see if it helps. If this drug proves to be safe in these patients, a logical assumption would be patients with post-COVID who develop uh, uh, fibrosis would be also candidates. Um, so this is a, a, a long process, but it's much shorter than if we started now with a new molecule that we would need to spend a few years to just show it's safe. Um, another drug is uh, uh, 
sobeterum. This was a molecule developed for actually for cholesterol. Our research and others have shown that it again may affect lung scarring. Actually, it may affect the recovery of the lung lining, the epithelium. And there's now uh, um, effort to repurpose it for lung fibrosis. Actually, it has been also proposed for acute COVID. And we're looking whether this would fit, again, the rare population of patients that have prolonged um, scarring of the lung. Um, so, and, Dr. Kaminsky, and, and, and we're not alone. So there's multiple mm -hmm. groups uh, around the world. And there's actually an initiative, uh, the pulmonary fibrosis connect on looking at these things. Dr. Kaminsky, what are the challenges to, to drug repurposing? You mentioned funding. And when we think about how long something takes to, to find the evidence uh, before it's widely used, can you talk a little bit about that and the government's role in helping you and your fellow researchers? So, so I, I want to say the most important thing for us now is our, our three things. One is describing the conditions we treat, because against the post-COVID syndrome is a syndrome, is a collection of conditions and diseases, and each one of them will need potentially specific drugs, and in each one of them will need evidence. So the NIH is funding a $1 billion initiative now to actually describe post-COVID. Tell us what it is. And it's really important. I know it's frustrating for the uh, patients and family and advocates to hear that uh, we, they need to participate as, uh, as participants in research, but that's the only way we understand we deal with. So that's one thing. The second is actually understand the biology. What do you need to treat? And again, this is hard. The third is indeed funding. I, I was actually really impressed I got this weekend, a report of the donations made to Yale New Haven from um, private individuals just to support the recovery clinic and the research. So over $100,000 given in sort of 20, 25, $50 checks from people in the community, showing how people in, community, in Connecticut are really want to support this. Not all of them are sick, but all of them understand that this is important. So. Funding is really important. It's really hard when you submit an NIH grant. It could take a year until you get. Industry has its own challenges. Uh, so advocacy, and that's why I admire Diana and her group, is advocacy is really important because if you can impact decision makers, uh, you can make a difference. I was thinking about uh, your point about the importance of having evidence uh, when we think about uh, when the pandemic was really bad and there was a flood of unproven therapies that ended up not being effective against COVID, uh, something that the former president, uh, some of the drugs that, that he uh, had mentioned to the public. And so, you know, just getting that, that message out uh, to both uh, patients and their families about uh, taking time as well um, before these drugs are used widely for a particular COVID symptom? I think that's, that's a, <clears throat> a really important. Sometimes there is this push from a patient or a family when they sit in the doctor's office to get a prescription, to get action. And that's not necessarily what you need. Sometimes it is, as, uh, as was uh, uh, mentioned by um, uh, Dr. Shergin, we need the time. We need those 40, 60, 70 minutes to speak with the patient to reassure them. We need to do the testing. Drugs are not harmless. Uh, 
And uh, it's really important to have evidence and to be treated by a multidisciplinary team. I do want to highlight again, and I know that that's not the topic I, I'm supposed to speak about, the access to care. Um, I think in Connecticut, also in other states, um, access to post-COVID recovery clinic is an unmet need. And there has to be some action empowering um, primary care, um, making sure that the patients are heard. Because if they don't even show up in the clinic, if there's a delay of two or three months from symptoms to appointment, how are we going to know what we need to treat? So it's really uh, important. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, of course, avoid the temptation of thinking, okay, I'm going to, the doctor will give me a short course of prednisone. How is it going to hurt me? Because it could hurt me. So it's important to be taken care of by a multidisciplinary clinic and generate the evidence that the therapies help. Well, when we think about the future, so many of us want to put this pandemic behind us, Dr. Kaminsky, but then there's news that the Delta variant, uh, there's particular problems and we're seeing uh, restrictions, uh, going back to restrictions in places like Israel and uh, Australia. And so what are your your final takeaways for our listeners when we think about the importance of, of treating long-haul COVID, but also to not let our guard down, I guess? So, so one thing I want to, again, latch on to the mention of the study by uh, Dr. Iwasaki at Yale uh, in collaboration with uh, Diana's uh, group. Um, vaccines may actually help. They definitely prevent the disease. They prevent the infection. They're, act, they're also effective against the Delta variant. Uh, Connecticut did amazingly well in vaccination initially. We can do much better. Um, there is a possibility that vaccines also mediate some of the effects of long COVID. So one is there's a study if people want to participate, but it's also another motivation to get vaccinated. I, I want to make one more shout out. As the chief of pulmonary critical care our, and sleep medicine at Yale, my physicians, especially the people who do critical care, have worked the last 17 months really like we never had. This was, they were cold serve and they work day and night and it's almost like i think we all owed it to our physicians to take be careful a little bit make sure that everybody gets vaccinated around us even if we're vaccinated um, advocate others engage with people who are um, uh, maybe hesitant to get vaccinated sometimes sometimes justifiably but encourage have the discussion because the only way we're going to go out of this condition is with widespread vaccines. Mm. Well, Dr. Naftali Kaminsky, a pulmonologist, chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, we appreciate your time today and we thank you. Thank you for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we'll continue talking about repurposing drugs to help COVID long haulers. Are you one of them? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is 
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, for years, Alzheimer's patients and their loved ones have hoped for new medical treatments for an incurable disease. On the next Where We Live, we talk about the FDA's approval of a new drug to treat Alzheimer's, and we learn why some in the scientific and medical community have concerns. Please join us. Now, today we've been talking to healthcare providers and researchers about treating COVID long haulers, including in repurposing drugs. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Jeffrey Ashleyman, Associate Professor of UConn School of Pharmacy. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Welcome. Uh, happy to be here. And I understand if, if, if we went to clinicaltrials.gov and we searched COVID and repurposed, some 20 trials come up and many haven't worked before for repurposing. In all this time and effort and money, when you look at repurposing drugs, it is worth it down the line as we see more and more people with these long-term symptoms, Jeff? Um, yeah, and I, I think it's, it's interesting to see that if you look at studies on uh, the website that you mentioned there, there's over 6,000 studies that have to do with some aspect of COVID. And I looked this morning to see which ones are either recruiting, ready to start, or ongoing that have to do with long COVID. And there's only about 39 studies that uh, are looking at some sort of treatment management of that. But the, a number of them are repurposed drugs, and they run the gamut uh, from things like cholesterol-lowering drugs, uh, like our statins, which do have some anti-inflammatory activities. Um, and again, I think you will see those numbers increase uh, with uh, time. I understand that researchers, again, are looking at drugs that may not have worked for the for the particular uh, reason that they were developed. But uh, I think one example is tocilizumab. I'm probably not saying that right, but if you, can you talk about um, what researchers have learned in terms of treating COVID long haulers? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what we've learned about the acute phase of the infection and whether treating that better may possibly result in either lower percentages of COVID long haulers or perhaps a shortening of the duration of those symptoms. And again, these are all unknowns. I mean, we're still relatively early in the stages of learning about what is causing and what you know pathophysiologically is, is causing the wide range of symptoms in, in our long haul COVID patients. Uh, and, you know, some of those things that we're starting to learn, theoretically, things like that drug tocilizumab that you mentioned, <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> it targets the inflammatory pathway. So it'll be interesting to see if we can quiet that down earlier in the acute infection, whether that may have some beneficial effects. But as now, there's just more questions than answers. <laughs> at this and that point. drug, that drug you mentioned, it was most commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis. And so what are researchers learning about when specifically COVID patients should get this particular medication? So that really has a very, very specialized niche where it's been shown to be most beneficial. There's been a number of studies, well-performed studies that show that you don't want to give it too early uh, because it may have some negative effects on your body's immune system to fight the early stages of the infection. But if you wait too long, if a person's lungs are severely damaged and they're in the intensive care unit, you've kind of missed your little window of opportunity. And it seems like there's a transition between the viral infection and an abnormal immune response. And that's what it seems the tocilizumab can, can help with is to prevent things from getting out of control. 
um, and it's had reductions in mortality in the acute phases of COVID, prevents people from needing things like respiratory ventilator support. So, um, yeah. Uh, there are some other uh, drugs that people are probably familiar with that have also been repurposed when we think about Viagra or Ritalin, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, a- yeah so, so there are an, a number of drugs that as we're starting to learn more about you know, where the virus goes, which we now know because of the, the way it binds to our human cells, it really can affect just about all of our organ systems. And we see it in the long haul COVID manifestations with neurologic symptoms, the brain fog, uh, some of the heart symptoms, the the, uh, uh, rapid heart rate, and the the kind of what's called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, which is low blood pressure that triggers that high heart rate. And that's that drug that Ivabradine Um, The uh, anti-heart failure drug that you alluded to earlier in the show, that's something that's gotten a little attention that's starting to be studied. So I think as we learn more about how the virus is affected and maybe altered some of our, our vital organs' normal functions, we can potentially repurpose drugs that we know share some common mechanisms of improving um, symptoms. And a couple of them were already mentioned too, using the inhalers like the albuterol inhalers uh, or, or steroid inhalers that we typically think of for asthma patients or COPD patients. Uh, these can have some, some value in the uh, right type of long haul patients after the very thorough evaluation of what's the constellation of symptoms uh, and uh, effects that they may have. We touched on earlier with Dr. Kaminsky that drug development takes time, and it's good to hear that private individuals are trying to find ways to donate to help, right? But in terms of when we think about long-term healthcare savings, Jeff, uh, repurposing drugs is important because long haulers, this may be with us for some time. Absolutely. And I think now we have the ability to take a two, a two or three-pronged approach. So clearly what we want to do is, is prevent more long haul COVID patients or reduce the numbers of them. So that's clearly where vaccination can play a role, Um, earlier management of acute COVID infections in people when they do develop can have some some benefits. And uh, then trying to figure out ways to either shorten the duration of long haul COVID. All these are gonna have fairly profound impacts on these patients' uh, quality of life but also on kind of the overall stress to the healthcare system and our ability to manage these patients with the care that they need. You know, the, the, more, the, the more of them, the harder it's gonna be for them to access these resources as has already been mentioned. And we have a number of great uh, facilities throughout the state, including UConn Health and Yale and a number of others. But, you know, clearly the, it's not gonna be enough if we continue to have large numbers of patients uh, that developed long COVID. So figuring out ways to, to prevent and treat it is is overall beneficial on a number of fronts. I mentioned that you're associate professor at the UConn School of Pharmacy. So in this last year and a half, uh, can you talk uh, just for the last couple of minutes here, but talk specifically about some of the the uh, the areas that you've been looking at in terms of, of treating COVID and how you talk to uh, up and coming pharmacists? 
Yeah, so so I I think that I think that our approach to managing COVID it was it was interesting. Uh, the course that I teach my students, the infectious diseases course, uh, I gave a no had to give a number of updates on what the current state of the art was for acute COVID management. But clearly, going forward next year, we're going to have to start to incorporate how do we uh, assess and manage some of these long haul COVID symptom patients, and in reality, some of them. Uh, may be best uh, handled by some of my colleagues that have to do with things like psychiatric aspects of disease, uh, pulmonary aspects of disease. And, and so it, it, may, it may be that we want to have some sort of multidisciplinary cross-spectrum uh, discussions with our students about how to approach these patients. And um, it was already mentioned by Dr. Kaminsky, and I'm glad he brought it up, is that with such a wide variety of symptoms that, that these long haul COVID patients are, are, are experiencing, it's really easy to potentially uh, get in a situation where if there are a number of medications being described for this symptom and that symptom, that can create more harm than good when you get a patient that all of a sudden is now taking five to 10 medications with potential severe drug interactions and toxicities that may actually aggravate some of their, some of their other system symptoms. And, you know, this is where pharmacists can be a really important part of these multidisciplinary teams uh, is to make sure that if we are going to be trialing medications, either in an experimental fashion um, or in uh, in a way that we know these drugs can potentially benefit them, we want to make sure we, that we don't harm them by layering lots of adverse effects or severe drug interactions. And that's you know that's what pharmacists get trained the best to assess uh, assess and manage. That's a very important point. Thank you uh, for bringing that up. And I also want to thank you for coming on the show today. Dr. Jeffrey Ashleman, again, Associate Professor of UConn School of Pharmacy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff as well. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>